0: Good morning, my name is James Green, I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. Wasn't in your bulletin that we we're going to have a baptism today, it was kind of a sneak attack, baptism. Neil was planning on joining today and texted me yesterday and said, man, I think I want to get baptized, can we make that happen? I said, man, I don't know, I don't know if it'll fit in with what we're trying to do there at the church. We'll see if we can get it going and it worked out and so you're going to have an opportunity to meet Neil later, that's fantastic you were with us last week, it's part of our vision weekend. And so hopefully you saw a video. We had a video from all the staff guys, and you know, it wasn't as good as meeting them one on one, but you kind of got to see a little bit of their heart and their character, I hope, and talk about their vision for what's going to go on here at the church in 2013. So it was exciting for us to make that. And then Dan came and he preached about our mission statement. And so I won't throw a pop quiz at you right now and see how many of you know it, but, uh, but I hope you do. It's certainly on our bulletin every week. We want to know him. We want to make him known, the mission for why we're here at the chapel. And he kind of walked through the ways that we, as, as Christ followers, can live on the edge. Do you remember he said we want to be able to go into the world but not be conformed to the world? Go with this incredible, incredible task of making him known, but go in such a way that we're holy and set apart. And so today, if you would, turn with me in your Bible or on your iPad, your U you version, however you follow along in your Bible, to the Gospel of John. Chapter one, we're going to be in verses 43 to 46 to start. And I want to kind of continue from Dan's message last week, but take a little bit different focus. If we're talking about knowing him and making him known, then to who are we going to make him known to? It's not a good sentence in English, is it? Who are we going to tell about Jesus? I mean, is there some kind of criteria that we would use? We would use to evaluate and go, I don't know if that person is worthy about Hearing me boldly speak about my relationship with God. It's by grace through faith in Christ. So we're going to read John's gospel, and I want to set the scene just a little bit. In this passage we're reading, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He's beginning his public ministry. And so he's starting to develop a little bit of a following. Folks are realizing there's something different about that guy. And so they're following him, and he's starting to call people out individually to follow him. And that's just the real definition of a disciple. It's a follower. It's a learner a student. So Jesus is in the neighborhood, and he's already picked up a few followers. And in verse 43, we read this. It says, The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip went and found Nathaniel. And he was excited. And he said to him, We found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. So Philip lays out Jesus' resume in bullet points, and it's pretty impressive. He says, this is the guy that Moses wrote about. This is the guy that the prophets prophesied about. This is Jesus. This is the guy. This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. This is a good resume. But all Nathanael hears is Nazareth. I think it begs a pretty significant question. What's wrong with Nazareth? And the thing is, I don't think there's anything wrong with Nazareth. Now, back in the day, it wasn't much of a town, real honestly. You know how you hear about towns being just a bump in the road? That's what Nazareth was. It literally probably measured about 900 yards by 200 yards. Population back in Jesus' day would have been somewhere between 100 and 500 people. Here's the deal about Nazareth. It wasn't world class wasn't a hot vacation spot. Nazareth wasn't leading the nation in anything. It was really normal by the standards of towns and villages back then. When I was in seminary, I had a professor, and he'd done his undergrad work at Illinois State University. And Illinois State's in the middle of a town called Normal, Illinois. The guy was older than me, but if you're as old as me, you remember this. Back in the day before the Internet, you know, if you wanted news, you had to read the daily newspaper. And so if you were in a real small town, man, everything was news. Somebody from your town going to a bigger town was news. It got in the newspaper. While this guy was in school, there was a headline in the wedding announcements. This guy who was an undergrad at Illinois was marrying a girl, and she was from the town of Oblong, Illinois. And here's how the wedding announcement read. Oblong woman to marry normal man. (laughs) The only joke the professor told all year, but it's such a good one. See, back in Jesus' day, Nazareth wasn't even normal Illinois. It was more like oblong. Not much to see here. You know, it wasn't big like Rome or Athens. It wasn't some seaport on the Mediterranean. It was the kind of place you'd make jokes about. You know, you might be from Nazareth if jokes. If Your family got together at dinner for your holiday gathering, and you had matching salad bowls that all say Cool Whip on them. You might be from Nazareth. Anybody who's ever asked you for identification and you pointed to your belt buckle? You might be from Nazareth. The first time you heard about the Unabomber, you thought he was a professional wrestler? You might be from Nazareth. My favorite, what if you tell a buddy of yours, man, I really like that girl, and your buddy goes, man, she's out of your league, and you think that means she bowls on a different night than you? You might be from Nazareth. What's, What's wrong with Nazareth? Really nothing. It's just normal. It was the normal Illinois of Palestine. But I think Jesus being from that kind of place can really teach us something valuable about who we're supposed to go out and make Christ known to. Because I think our tendency is, at least I know mine, is, man, we want to go big. Go big or go home. I mean, it's a good thing the God of the universe didn't ask me to help plan how Jesus would enter the world, how the Savior would come as a tiny little baby. Because I'd like to think that I would have suggested something a little bigger than what he got, something with some fanfare. I mean, let's have a party this baby he's the king of kings he's the lord of lords he's the creator all these names and titles he's the wisdom from above he's truth he's light he's the high priest he's the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he's going to be born in a cave he's going to be born in a manger amongst some smelly animals can we not find this couple a room at the ritz i know i know let's have his party at niagara falls and we'll turn the waterfall into a chocolate fall We'll have fondue. I mean, something big, something really impressive like that. But I wasn't on that committee. And so God said, I'm going to choose to have the Savior be born in a humble place called Bethlehem and then grow up in a normal place called Nazareth. Do You know what Bethlehem means scripturally? House of bread. Got its origins from David's great-great-grandpa Boaz, who was out surrounded by these wheat fields, and they needed a place to thresh and store the wheat. And so they built a threshing floor there and a few houses, boom, house of bread. And later, when God came into the world, he arrived in this little one-horse town. We call it a one-stoplight town today. But the thing about it is, it's, it's a place, no doubt, just like tens of thousands, towns like that all across America. Probably hundreds of thousands of towns like that across the world. You know what we'd call Bethlehem today here in the heartland of America? grain elevator. That's basically what it was. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? Hey, where are you from? All over grain elevator, Missouri. You know about our football team, the fighting colonels, or the K. So Jesus was born into that setting. And then he take a family trip to Egypt, and he comes back, and he settles in Nazareth. And it's clear from Nathaniel's question, can anything good come from Nazareth? That calling somebody a Nazarene back in Jesus' day I'd be like calling him a redneck or hillbilly. So why did God choose to put Jesus on this earth for literally like 90% of his life in a place like normal Illinois, a place like Grain Elevator, Missouri? And what was Jesus doing in these years leading up to his public ministry before we read about this passage in John? We know for sure he was about his father's business. But I'm not talking entirely about the Luke 2.49 sense. You know, that passage where, The 12-year-old Jesus gets left at the temple. Mary and Joseph are frantically looking for him, and they find him. And he says, hey, don't you know, I have to be in my father's house. I have to be about my father's business. Well, Jesus was totally about his father's business all the time. But he was also about his father Joseph's business. Literally, we know Jesus took up the family trade. He was a carpenter. The Greek word that described this trade back in the day is tekton. It means a worker in wood or a craftsman. So we are carpenter, and I know for me at least, I think, well, that's construction. That's building and framing. But the thing is, they didn't have, you know, frame-style houses back in Galilee like we do now. So if you read, scholars kind of give the job description of what a Galilean tecton would have done, and it was this. They made ox accessories. Jesus would have made, like, yokes and carts and plows. So from childhood until he was about 30, Jesus worked at a farm implement shop. Does that give us a different image of God whatsoever? Jesus was born in Grain Elevator and then he spent most of his life working at the John Deere dealership over in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? We know the answer. The answer is yes, because we know the rest of the story. But for the folks back in Jesus' day, for Nathaniel asking this question, what could be worthwhile? What would be worth giving up my life? What would be worth following that could come from such humble origins. Certainly the Messiah couldn't come from a humble place like Nazareth. But he did. And understanding just how normal, how unextraordinary Nazareth was should lead us to a follow-up question and say, well, then would anything good go to Nazareth? Would anyone who was any good go there? I mean, seriously, wouldn't a place like Nazareth be where you'd send your less talented people? People with no ambition, people with no real drive? Who would want to go to Nazareth? If we think about it, and I hope I'm not twisting it too much, but isn't that a little like the question Dan asked last week? Would any of us go to a bar, tell unbelievers about Jesus Christ? Would any of us skip church to go fishing, literally fishing? That meant we'd have the opportunity to do some spiritual fishing. with a buddy of ours out on the boat, a captive audience, unless they drown you, they got to hear Would we be willing to do those kind of things? Does anybody with potential, anybody who's ambitious, go to those kind of places? Navigate your way with me over to Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. Just flip a few chapters back. You see from Scripture, at least one guy did. At least one guy with enormous potential did. He was from Nazareth, and then he went back. text reads this way. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread all through the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. Jesus was out doing ministry, and he comes back to Nazareth. And this is big to me, because I think it gives us that clear picture that everybody, everybody is worthy of being made known about Jesus. Not just folks who live in big cities. Not just folks with fame and fortune not just folks who don't cross the cultural barrier that we're not willing to cross. Everybody is worthy of knowing. In Mark chapter two, again in Luke chapter five, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. That guy was worthy knowing about Jesus. Mark chapter 10, Jesus ministers to a blind man and then gives him sight. Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals the 10 lepers. All those guys were worthy of knowing about Jesus. Read a great story in all the synoptics in Mark 5. It's in Matthew 9. It's in Luke 8. Jesus ministers to a woman who's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and he heals her. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a woman, which would have been unusual, and she was a Samaritan woman, so he's crossing gender lines and racial lines and cultural lines, and he tells her the truth. Looks like he leaves out the love part. If you remember that passage, he goes, oh, go bring your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're darn skippy. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with isn't your husband. But but the idea was he's saying nobody. Nobody is unworthy of hearing about Jesus. Famously in Matthew chapter 9, he goes to the Matthew party. You know that passage? He's sitting at Matthew the tax collector's house, and he's reclining at the table, and he's eating with sinners. That was dangerous because back in the day, if you ate with sinners, that meant you accepted them. And I could go on literally, all day with this. We could look at story after story after story, right up until kickoff time this afternoon, about Jesus going to these kind of places, to these kind of people, crossing those lines. And we've got to ask, what was Jesus doing? Why would he go to Nazareth? Why would he go to any of these places, any of these people? And I hope for us, we realize it's because when we talk about his birth and his life and his death, and his resurrection, it's just like the passage in Luke 2.10 says, it's for all the people. All the people. Everybody means everybody. So as a local church, when we get challenged by this, when we talk about being impactful in outreach, do we mean everybody? Or do we just mean folks who look like me? Folks who talk like me or act like me? Folks who have the same socioeconomic background as me? Well, I pray that's not it. Does God call us just to reach young professionals, just college students, just culture shapers? Or does he call us to reach out to everyone? Does God still call people to go to Nazareth? It's a true story I thought about this week. There's a guy I was in a study group with in one of my seminary classes. He was a nice guy, and we're getting to know everybody, and we're sharing our background information. Hey, here's who I am and where I'm from. And He said this, I remember. He goes, I'm on staff at a small church there in my hometown. You know, it was his, his Nazareth. He goes, but after I graduate... I'm going to go get a job at a bigger church. He said, so I can impact more people for Christ. You know, on the surface, I guess that sounds okay. It seems kind of noble. But I remember when he said it, I had a real check in my spirit about it. And I think it was primarily for two reasons. And it hit me later. Because first, I'm saying, is he saying that people in his hometown, people in his Nazareth, don't need teaching? Do they not need a shepherd? Are they not worthy? of guidance and love and pastoring and equipping, does somebody not need to be there for them, challenging them to go out and make disciples? I'm always impacted by that song that Ryan closed the service with last week. If you remember that song, God of the City. That song beats me up. Verse says, greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in our city. Let's not give up on the Nazareths of the world quite yet. The reality is that there's no one who is not worthy of reaching out to, whether you're blind or leprous or a prostitute or a tax collector or from Nazareth. I learned this lesson in a valuable way a few years ago from my buddy Jim Harper. We got robbed here at the church. We've been robbed a couple times. It's not much fun. This time they grabbed a big rock from outside and they threw it through one of the windows, and then they picked up the rock when they got inside and threw it through the office window. They stole some computers, and you just feel violated. It's all weird. So we show up at work that day, and, you know, nobody gets to work right away because there's all this stuff, and the police come, and got to call the insurance guy, and police came and dusted the rock for fingerprints, which I thought was really funny. And, and so, it takes, you know, we didn't get started right away. We're kind of all just hanging out in the lobby. And finally, Jim comes in. Jim had an office here for years. And so we tell Jim the whole story, hey, here's what happened, you know, and we kind of start to disperse and break up. And Jim goes, yeah, we need to pray. I said, man, that's a good idea because like, we've been persecuted And we've been violated. We need to pray. And Jim goes, no, we need to pray for those guys who robbed us. I said, what a silly idea. (laughs) You need to pray for us. What are you talking about? But see, here's the deal. Jim got it, and I didn't. I heard a guy say this about Jim yesterday at his funeral. He said, Jim was the most common, ordinary, everyday guy you'd ever meet. And that being said, Seriously, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who God used in a mightier way to bring folks to himself, and I've been around. (laughs) If that's what being normal is like, then we'd all benefit from being just a little bit more normal because Jim was willing to take risks on people, and he was willing to go any place to meet with somebody who had potential, and Jim wouldn't write anybody off. (laughs) Jim got it and God used Jim to help me get it, these guys who robbed the church, they desperately needed to hear the gospel. That was the deal. They weren't unworthy. Now, we understand that God doesn't change the pattern of scripture. There's still going to be consequences. There's always blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience, but thank the Lord that being disobedient doesn't permanently disqualify us from responding to the gospel message. I think oftentimes, God just uses things, he allows things in our life that will cause brokenness quicker so that we can respond to faith in him. So for sure, one thing bothered me about that guy from my study group, and it was that notion that folks in his small town might be somewhat, you know, less worthy of the gospel. Or, Really, I think kind of what he was saying is once he was, you know, degreed and once he had his seminary degree, they could do with somebody who was less qualified than him to share with them. But the other thing that really bothered me as I thought about what he said was that you never see Jesus doing ministry that way. Jesus was never in the Colosseum. Jesus didn't say, hey, I got an extended, you know, three-night stay at the palace. Get your tickets before it's too late. Come and hear me preach. Jesus didn't find these big venues and try to pack folks in to hear the teaching. As we've already seen, Jesus just went from place to place ministering to the people he came in contact with, whether it was one person or a small group of people, or a bunch of people. But he wasn't trying to draw big crowds. I think really the opposite seemed to be true. Flip over with me to John chapter 6. Throughout that chapter in John, there's this neat scene that unfolds. And I think it really kind of highlights the approach from Jesus. Early in the chapter, Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. You know that story. He's doing some Jesus things that we can't do. And it's drawing some attention. He's starting to develop a crowd. And in verse 26, he says this, Jesus answered them, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. He's basically saying, your God is your belly. You're not following me for the right reasons. You just want some food. And so he responds in typical Jesus fashion. He says, you want some food? And he preaches the vampire sermon. And this is tough stuff. Look at verse 48. He says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He says, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He follows that up in verse 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And this produces the kind of reaction you'd think it might from folks who aren't interested in following Christ. They're not interested in abiding. They're interested in knowing where the buffet line starts. And so they say this in verse 60. This is a difficult statement. (laughs) Who can listen to it? It leads to this reaction in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and they're not walking with him anymore. See, Jesus wasn't walking around trying to drum up a big crowd. He was going from place to place and making God known. He was telling a truth, a very, very core important truth that you see in that passage. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. I think there's something really interesting, pretty telling if you research it, and it tells us a lot about the geography and the makeup of the first century world, but I think it also says a lot about Jesus' method of ministry. About 80% of Jesus' three-year ministry occurred in little towns and little villages, the oblong Illinois, the grain elevator Missouris of the world. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says this, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's a word village in there. The actual Greek word for village is kome, and it really meant a hamlet. It's not a village even the way we'd think of it. It's a group of a few small houses out in the country. And what was he doing as he went? Well, Matthew 9, 35 tells us, Mark 1 and 38 does too. He said to them, let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there, for that's what I came for. Here in this verse, the word is town, and the Greek word is komopolis. It's just a little larger village. still a place with no walls. It's still a very loosely organized place. And I think Mark 1.38 is a really neat verse to look at to see how Jesus did ministry. Because if he was going to change his philosophy, or if he wanted to preach to crowds, this would have been a good opportunity. In the context of this passage... Jesus had been in Capernaum. Now, it wasn't a huge town. It was probably about 1,500 or so folks back in the day. But Jesus was there, and he'd been doing some amazing things. He'd been teaching, and he'd been healing, and he leaves the synagogue, and he goes to Peter's house, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. There's no mention of whether Peter's pleased with that or not in Scripture. But by that evening, verse 33 says, the whole city had gathered at his door. If Jesus is wanting to preach to large crowds, here's his shot. Can you imagine 1,500 people standing at the door? I mean, I'd think, man, what a great time to roll out the gospel. But Jesus says, hey, we've got to go to the other towns and preach to them too. This is like a purpose statement for Jesus' life. He says, I've come to preach that a relationship with God is it. It's the most important thing, and the only way is through me, and nobody's unworthy hearing it. Let's go. We've got to get to the next town. One of the things we've been challenged with as a staff for 2013 is to really think about developing kind of a new mindset, a new philosophy of ministry where you would say, wow, if Jesus was willing to go to one person at a time, don't we need to do that? We need to be more about discipling. We need to be more about mentoring. We need to be more about finding individuals and pouring into them and then letting them go share their faith, letting them go be missionaries. You know, but here's the reality behind that because I'm, I'm really simple, and I'm real small in my thinking sometimes, and I want the chapel to grow numerically. I really do, but hear me on this because I don't want to be prideful on this. Nobody that I'm aware of on staff wants to be prideful about this. Our deal is we want to teach the Bible. We want to teach the Bible accurately. We want to teach the Bible clearly, and we want that to result in people living different lives, radically changed lives in front of others, but we don't want the credit. We want all the glory to go to God. I don't want anybody's life to be radically changed by something I taught. I want it to be by what God did. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to teach the Bible well, yeah, I want a zillion folks to come and hear it. I want every service to be packed. I really do. But the deal is we don't want crowds in the same way Jesus didn't want crowds. We don't want crowds of folks who come and don't engage. We don't want crowds of folks who come just for a free meal. The idea is if we're not willing to go out and do it the way Jesus did, like he modeled it for us, then we really shouldn't do it. And the way Jesus would do it is if those big crowds came, he'd roll out the really hard teaching. And then folks who were just looking for healing, folks who weren't really following, they'd thin out. If the folks were coming, and and he'd roll out some of that hard teaching like John 6, which is about union in Christ. It's about abiding in him. It's not about being a cannibal or a vampire or anything. He's saying if you truly want to follow me, then you'll understand that means we abide together. He'd preach that, and the numbers would fall real low. But even knowing this model, I fall into that trap. I mean, come on, Jesus. Wouldn't it have been easier just to have some of those big Sermon on the Mount events? Have you a big conference, bring about like 20,000 people? That'd be awesome. It'd be so much quicker, and you'd have to do less walking. But there's problems with that. I think some of them are pretty easy to see. First off, not everybody can travel. Certainly back in the day, not everybody traveled. You had to be healthy enough to travel. You had to have money and food to travel. But I think there's even a bigger reason, really even a better reason, why Jesus didn't do it this way. And it's the thing that's really challenged me this week. It's because it's a lot different to come and listen to a message. It's a lot different to come and hear a sermon than it is to go out and engage, to go out and live it, reach people, so you can make Christ known. My wife got a phone call this past week. I think it was Tuesday night. She's been discipling this young girl for like 15 years, pouring into her. My wife's a great model of perseverance. This girl just accepted Christ a couple years ago. She really struggles with an addiction problem, and she loves my wife so much that she called her, and she was in a place where she shouldn't have been. She said, would you come get me? And Christina left, and I... I don't see hearts, even my wife's, but we're one flesh. I think she would have rather stayed home. (laughs) I was home, the kids were home, it was a night at home, everything was great. You get a phone call and you go. Here's the truth. Discipleship is messy. Pouring your life into someone is an investment. It's much easier to just listen to a sermon. I'll tell you this, it's much easier to just stand up here and preach a sermon than it is to go out and live it. Dan shared last week, what if we'd canceled services today? What if we'd canceled, but the deal was you have to go and have a tailgate party for the Super Bowl, but it has to be a Matthew party. You have to invite your unsaved friends. Tell the truth. How many of you would be watching the game alone tonight? Periodically, I'll challenge the staff during our staff meetings. We meet weekly, and sometimes I'll just blow the meeting. and I'll say, hey, we're going to go out and share our faith. We're asking folks in the body to do this. We need to do it. Scripture says, let's go out and do it. I remember doing it one time. Matt Gordon told this story. He actually told it up here teaching, so I'm not violating his confidence. He said, man, I was trying to figure out a way out of it. I was trying to figure out if there was a way I could not do it. He goes, but I knew you'd ask me later how it went. So he we went up to the campus up the southeast, and he ended up having a great conversation with a student. It started out pretty lame because... Matt went up to him and said, hey, my boss said I have to share my faith with somebody. (laughs) But God just used it. And the great thing is Matt went. He was so willing to go. Are we doing that? Are we willing to engage as a church? Are we willing to say, yeah, if our mission statement is we want to know him, it can't just be about knowing him. We want to make him known. And then we ask, well, then to who? Who's not worthy of hearing the gospel? And we go out filled with the Holy Spirit, commanded to make disciples, and go like Jesus did. We engage like he did. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 says this. And he was passing through from one city and village to another. This is Jesus. He was teaching and he was proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Here's the deal. Jesus was busy. Jesus was like you and me. He had stuff to do. He had places to go. He had people to see. But he wasn't walking with his head down. He was looking around going, who can I impact? Who is going to be right in my path that I can make Christ known to, make myself known? Everybody needs the gospel, period. Everybody, I think, needs good churches near them. I 100% agree. But more importantly, I think everybody needs good Christ followers near them. I think they need folks who will invest in them, folks who will disciple them, who will show love and compassion and encouragement. Folks who live their lives with them. Because here's the deal. Spiritual need doesn't stop at the water's edge. It doesn't stop at racial lines or gender lines or socioeconomic lines. It just doesn't. There's One last point, because I want to take a look at another example other than Jesus. Because let's be honest, that's a hard example. If Jesus is your benchmark, you know you're not going to look so good there. you imagine growing up being one of Jesus' brothers? Mary would be like, why can't you be more like your brother? He's Jesus. So instead, let's take a look at a guy named Philip. Now, Philip also has a unique claim to fame. He's the only guy in the New Testament called an evangelist. I'm thinking he must have been pretty good at it. You can confirm this in the book of Acts, chapter 8. We see Philip going out, and he's having a lot of success in verses 5 and 6. It says he's proclaiming Christ, and there's crowds there, and there's rejoicing. And yet what we remember from Philip's life that God took him away from all that God said hey Philip leave that highly populated area where you're having a lot of impact for me I want you to go out in the middle of the desert I want you to go out in the middle of nowhere and you're going to reach one guy and share with one guy the story of God's love so Philip is obedient and he goes and God puts him in the path of an Ethiopian eunuch and God uses Philip to draw the eunuch to himself, Philip gets to baptize him It's a great great picture I think there's a huge lesson here. Everyone matters to God. Individuals are important to God. I think there's another lesson that I ought to really reach out to that guy from my study group with. I don't even remember where I'd be able to find him now. He's probably found a bigger church. But here's the deal. Sometimes God will use some of his best people to go to the one. Philip was the evangelist. He was the guy, but he left the crowds to go reach this one guy just like we saw Jesus doing so many times going through the towns and the villages. There are stories, if you read missionary stories, I love them. There are stories in church history that indicate when missionaries showed up in Ethiopia for the very first time, they were astonished because they found widespread pockets of Christ followers in Ethiopia. Where do you think they heard about Jesus? Guarantee guarantee was from the Ethiopian eunuch. God put Philip in his path. Do we not think that God would get glory if we made him known to just one person at a time? We said, I'm going to live my life in Christ intentionally right in front of that guy that I work with on the assembly line. I'm going to make Christ known to those three ladies that I eat lunch with every day in the workroom. I'm going to share Christ one guy at a time with my roommate, with a guy on my floor, and see what would happen. And have the opportunity to take communion today. It's a great opportunity. Symbolically participate with God, just like the passage in John 6 says, we're not eating His flesh and drinking His blood. We're abiding. We're having union with Him. That's the idea. The Scripture says as we do it, we're supposed to remember that Christ sacrificed for us. We're also supposed to examine our hearts and confess. And be right with Him. And so as we do that, I hope we pray and we'll think, man, can anything good come from Nazareth? Would anyone good go to Nazareth? And remember that one guy did. One guy with a lot of potential came from humble origins, and he went back because everybody matters to God.